Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. There had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature. Are you ready to get your world rocked? Ready! Are you ready to get your mind blown? Do it! One, two, three, four! Born in the dance halls of 1950s Jamaica, ska continues to be revived and reinvented across the globe. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. We'll present a genre dissection of all three waves of ska. Plus, we'll review the debut album from Chance the Rapper's collaborator, Jamila Woods. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and Greg, from time to time, we like to do what we call a genre dissection, digging deep into a sound that people may think they know, but maybe they don't know the roots of it, or uh, maybe people are getting exposed to it for the first time. I have long been wanting to do a show about ska, with its roots in Jamaica, what they call the first wave, an incredible, uh, joyous, but also political music, second wave ska coming up in the punk years, third wave ska, sort of revival and explosion of popularity in the 90s. Three different stories, really, but one classic beat. We've got just the people here to help us explain it, Jim. Uh, two experts in ska. Chuck Wren, a longtime ska DJ and scholar and the founder of Jump Up Records, and Charlie Organier, a harmonica player who played on countless ska sessions in Jamaica in the 60s. Chuck, Charlie, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks for Thank having us. Thank you very much. Charlie, you were there from the very beginning of ska. I mean, pretty much any time you hear a harmonica on those early Jamaican recordings, I mean, it's you. Uh, Derek Morgan, Stranger Cole, Prince Buster, Bob Marley, Toots and the Maytals, Jimmy Cliff, you name it, you played with them. So, Charlie, can you define to us what makes ska, ska? The ska is that upbeat on the over the rhythm, you know, like it's one and, it's the and, you know, one and, 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 and. And the drummer, actually, the drummer just plays that straight one, two, one, two, that's basically it. So whatever the rhythm is, that upbeat over that and, that's what makes it ska. Mm-hmm. Just that upbeat, because they, the songs can be any song. Right. You know, it could be Abide With Me, Fall Down, or whatever it is. Yeah. But as long as that beat is there, that upbeat, sure. that's what ska is. And so it can be up-tempo, it can be medium-tempo. Mm-hmm. And the name ska, where did that originate? Theophilus Beckford which was a popular pianist. Um, Cluett Johnson, Rico Rodriguez, and people like those, they started playing a song called Easy Snapping.
course, most of the music that they played was of that same type of rhythm. And you know, Cluett Johnson was a bass player. And he said, man, every day you come with this ska, ska, ska. And that's exactly where it started, the, the name, uh-huh. ska. Mean, meaning the guitar, ska, 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 Well, ska. The, the guitar and the piano mm. and the horns, mm-hmm. because the saxophone and the, that, they, they all play that rhythm. The saxophone, the trumpets, and trombone, everybody playing the ska, but the lead player. Charlie, uh, tell us about the musical influences that went into creating ska. Now, there, there was Mento in the 50s, this acoustic uh, Jamaican folk music, basically, that was the ground floor of ska music, pretty much the big precursor to ska, right? Like you said, we, the Mento music is the very beginning of Jamaican music. Everybody look in, see them all they search. That's all you can hear, but no one can tell you really what was and of course, Jamaica. He and New Orleans music were very popular in Jamaica. The DJs would be playing a lot of that type of music. So we were also influenced by that. It's got early morning, don't come home tonight. It's got early morning, don't come home tonight. Don't you know? Another influence we had was Cuba, because Cuban music, Cuba is just 90 miles away, mm-hmm, and sure. so we're listening, we played, in Jamaica, we played everybody's music. Jamaican's musicians were probably the most versatile musicians. I played in the hotels also, you know, mm-hmm. I played Playboy and the Holiday Inn and all these different hotels. Mm. and. There are folks coming from the States and they want to hear something done by Frank Sinatra. So you have to know all the Frank Sinatra <laughs> right. songs. Yep. You know, they want to hear a Paracomo, some yep. want to hear a little jazz. I'm in the mood for love Simply because you're near me Funny but when you're near me I'm in the mood for love So... You find that these musicians were versatile to all those music. You said that the sounds of New Orleans were coming to Jamaica. How were people on Jamaica hearing American music? Well, the thing is, um, the DJs, they compete against each other. So they would collect records like, you know, you have Duke Reed, Mm. which is Treasure Island. You have um, Sir Coxon's Downbeat. As a matter of fact, you had thousands of these sound systems all over Jamaica. Well, and tell us, tell us what a sound system is, because this is well, fascinating. The, okay, the sound system is actually uh, DJs, mm-hmm. but they you have these huge boxes, they call them House of Joy and Big Powerful <laughs> Amps. Yeah. And Often on the back of a pickup truck. Yeah. Right? Yeah, but, but in the dance halls, like um, the um, Jubilee, and you have Forrester's Hall, you know, and and big halls like that. Mm. So they would put their horns up like in a tree sometimes, mm. and <laughs> you could be five miles away, <laughs> ten miles away, <laughs> and you hear them blasting, you know?
Charlie, you were the studio harmonica player for hundreds of sessions in Jamaica. Describe for us what it was like to be in the studio recording all those classic ska singles. We had one studio uh-huh. that we were working from, and it's called Federal. It was a small studio, and everything that was recorded was live. Everything was recorded live. Wow, one take. Everybody in the One room. take. You can, if you listen to the older recordings, you can hear the, the engineer saying red light because when that red light comes on, that means you start. Mm-hmm. And always 9 o'clock in the morning, the session starts. Then from 9 to 5, then from there, another engineer starts, mm. you know. And I was in all these sessions, so we were working from 9 o'clock till 3 a.m., Wow. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah, and back in the studio the following day. Would have been like New Orleans or, or you know, Stax or Motown where there were house bands, and you yeah. would play on all the records by, right. the, by these artists. So mm-hmm. they one after another, they would be coming in and, and doing their, uh, a single, basically. Is that how it would work? You could see multiple artists in the same day? Yeah, multiple artists, because we would do like 10 songs uh, between 9 in the morning and um, 5 o'clock. Mm-hmm. would completely record like 10 or more songs. All these sessions, the singer run down a song once. Mm-hmm. You memorize the, the rhythm, and then the next thing the guy says, red light, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. and you record mm-hmm. just like that. Mm-hmm. So solos is just, everything comes out naturally. Sounds like a great wow. gig. Um, yeah, I was getting what two pounds for each side I played. On. <laughs> hey, <laughs> all right. At that time, that was um, like a couple hundred dollars today. Eventually, I mean, gradually, then Studio One, I think they were the next one opened, started their own studio, and then Treasure Island, and then after that, studios just start coming up like, you know, out of the walls and <laughs> recording studios. Right. Like and back of ice cream shops. Right? Yeah. to Chuck Wren now. Uh, Chuck, as a scholar of ska and Jamaican music, a super fan, uh, who would you say are the most important ska artists? Or, or rather, I guess we should start with the Scatolites, right? It all begins there. Uh, Scatolites were basically the house band that created the ska sound and basically enabled uh, many, many different vocalists such as Ken Booth or Elton Ellis to have a career mm. in Jamaican music. 
these guys built the entire foundation. You know, the house was completely constructed on top of Scatolite's horn players and, you know, the vocalists they brought in and the rhythm section. They are the instrumental foundation, much in the way that people associate, you know, the house band at Motown creating the Motown sound. One name that keeps coming up in that first wave of ska is Laurel Aitken. Uh, Some people have called him the godfather of ska. He started with, you know, Jamaican rhythm and blues and boogie woogie and uh, moved into ska in some ways as a later period music for him. I mean, he was definitely there at the ground floor at the, you know, late 50s, early, early 60s. -hmm. Uh, He's got mento recordings as well that are fantastic. And he was seamlessly able to move into ska music. We want to be like Adam and Eve. Let us go in the garden, if you please. Charlie Organier, you recorded with pretty much all of those artists, and you also played on the early recordings of the Jamaican artists who would become famous later on with the reggae scene in the 70s, Bob Marley, Jimmy Cliff, Toots and the Maytals. But, you know, it seems like there's so many other pioneers of that sound that are completely unknown today. Who are some of those forgotten artists who really invented ska? Um, When I started, we had people like Drumbago as a drummer, the saxophonist Ribs, you have... um, one we call Campbell, always ska, the ska, ska, and those are the horns that are playing, you know. You had different, various drummers that mm. played. Lester Sterling was from the beginning of it, you know. You have, uh, there's so many mm-hmm. that, and their names are not mentioned, you know, and part of it, um, I can't figure it out. There's like society type situation that goes with the Jamaica settings, you mm-hmm. know. At that time, the music in Jamaica didn't get too much recognition. This music down there, like mm-hmm. it's from the ghetto or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that's how they look at it at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, So people like Bob Marley, he got gotten his recognition overseas. Not in Jamaica, not too much there, you know. So a lot of those musicians, I've never seen them, the, their names on anything. Richard Ace. You know, he played on all these Toots and the Meters. He played on Earl Bob Marley and and all that. Never seen his name. And this is all still ska. Before there was Rocksteady or reggae? No, well, you know, the same sky is called Rocksteady. Okay. What it is, what happened is that 
the the pace you know i mean a little it slowed down a little mm-hmm. when you have people like um john holt mm. you know started in the paragons yeah all that ease are going yeah. you know on the beach Let's amazes me about the journey of learning about Jamaican music is how much it it mirrored what was going on in the States. So Mm -hmm. you talk about ska being New Orleans, jump blues, you know, shuffle blues, rhythm and blues. When that sound kind of shifted here in the States into more soul, uh, vocal groups, that's what happened with Rocksteady. You slow down, you had love songs, you know, which you kind of didn't really have as much in the ska era. And then if you think about what reggae, you know, morphed into from Rocksteady, it's kind of that funk influence. You know, yeah. you've got that even scratchier guitar. You know, you've got that organ instead of the piano. You let the basses go wild. You know, you got that one drop, uh, you know, drumming style. You know, it's funk oriented. No, the dancing was different also, you know, the ska, you know, crossing the arms and the legs and that type of stuff for the ska. Then when they call it rock steady, then you move to the side and move to the right, to the left. And then the reggae now is lifting your feet real faster because the reggae started very fast. Mm -hmm. Today now everything is called reggae. It's just the same ska. It's been a complete pleasure to speak with harmonica player Charlie Organair talking about those legendary Jamaica studio sessions during the first wave of ska. Charlie, thanks so much for being our guest on Sound Opinions. Nice being with you guys. When we come back, we'll continue our genre dissection in the UK and America as we look at the second and third waves of ska with DJ Chuck Wren. And later, we're going to review the debut album from Chicago poet and soul singer Jamila Woods. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. My partner is Jim DeRigatis. Today we're doing a genre dissection of ska, the style of dance music that was created in the 50s and 60s in Jamaica. Before the break, we talked about how in Jamaica, ska evolved into rock steady and then into reggae, which became that uh, 70s worldwide sound thanks to people like Bob Marley. But ska didn't disappear. It continued on elsewhere in the world. The so-called second wave of ska began in the UK in the 70s. We're joined by Chuck Wren, founder of Jump Up Records and an expert on the history of ska. Chuck, what was the second wave of ska? Well, basically, lots of Jamaicans moved to Great Britain in search of work. So you had uh, very large West Indian communities all across Mm. uh, Britain. And they were bringing their music and their culture and their influences. And they were right alongside, you know, working class kids, white kids. A lot of these kids would take these influences and then, you know, shake it up in a cocktail with uh, the music that they were growing up on, the punk movement. And, you know, they changed it around a bit. You know, obviously they they kind of took the emphasis of the huge horn section. They kind of minimalized that. Uh, and they, you know, brought the guitar uh, more up to the front that, you know, basically helped define the two-tone sound. Now, Two-Tone was a label, Yes, it was a movement, and it also really described the, the black and white coming together racial aspect. Yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, you know, the label that Jerry Dammers of the special started, and he uh, created the name for all those things you said, you know, the racial unity of the bands, the racial message that mm-hmm. all the bands were, you know, trying to convey in a time of you know, deep troubling times. Well, because um, some white uh, Brits were blaming the immigrants absolutely. for, quote-unquote, taking their jobs. Yeah. So, you know, they were putting on these shows with mixed crowds, uh, mixed band members, you know, singing about racial unity, uh, the black and white checkerboard, all pushed the envelope of, you know, black and white harmony. Well, a lot of international hits out of that scene. Uh, what are the key records, key bands? Well, I mean, obviously the first record from the specials, the band that created the two-tone sound, the blueprint. What what and, year is that, Chuck? Uh, that would be, that came out in 1979. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, that first specials record was an homage in some ways to the originators. You know, there were a lot of covers, per se, on the first specials record, but they made them so uniquely their own. And then the records that followed, you know, by other bands were, you know, equally influential. That first Madness record, One Step Beyond, which... 
came out the same year, uh, 1979, I believe. Um, they kind of took a little bit more of a pop, jovial mm-hmm. um, songwriting style. You know, I guess the other record that we need to talk about is that very first English beat record. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or is known, as, you know, in England as just the beat. Uh, you know, I Just Can't Stop It was just a wonderful mix of, you know, once again, they've got a couple Prince Buster covers on there. But, you know, they've got just a wonderful mix of, you know, that kind of edgy, like I said, guitar-oriented, modern, punk-infused ska, you know, in the mirror, in the bathroom yeah. sort yeah. of thing. When people define two tone, they really only kind of add a couple more bands. You know, yeah, Bad Manners, yeah. Uh, the Selector, the Body Snatchers. Um, you know, that's kind of where people bookend it. You know, mm-hmm. um, those handful of bands. Is it New Wave's popularity that, that kills off Scott? Because or, 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 Two-Tone doesn't uh, carry far into the 80s. No. I mean, I think... So I, I think it is safe to say that um, New Wave accidentally put the, you know, the end to Two-Tone. Um, just what happens. And then they have a transition into uh, what became the third wave. There were, I think what we saw was an American adaptation of what was happening in Two Tone, you saw bands like uh, Fishbone and Operation Ivy incorporating some of these rhythms into the the punk and post punk scenes. Yes, um, specifically, you know, kind of skater culture. The mm-hmm. way I looked at it, mm. those bands truly influenced everything that happened uh, in the third wave.
Well, I, I think Operation Ivy stands in, in a league of its own. I mean, they get a tremendous amount of respect. And like Greg said, Fishbone and Op Ivy were, were the bridge bands. If we put a date on what's actually called Third Wave, and you could sense, just like the major labels descended on Seattle and said, we're going to sign us some grunge bands. We're going to sign every grunge band. You know, uh, that's what happened with Third Wave Ska. Yes. Roundabout. I feel like it was somewhere around 1993 because that's when we saw a lot of the bands around us sort of getting real attention. And it was not surprising that it would just be a few years later that a couple of them would break onto the radio. Would I have ever guessed that it would be rancid, you know, breaking ska on the radio with Time Bomb? I could have never predicted that. That song itself uh, paved the way for everything that came afterward, you know. And I still, to this day, remember hearing it on the radio and just saying to myself, "Here it comes." <laughs> Greg and I have been fighting about Third Wave Scott for a long time. Uh, you know, I can't defend Rancid, okay? Uh, but, like, Save Ferris uh-huh. with that cover of, of Come On, Eileen. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> People do love that. I love the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. Boss Tones are a great band. Who were the Boss Tones? Uh, Boss Tones, uh, basically a bunch of hardcore kids. Yeah. You know, in Boston, grew up on, you know, bands like Slapshot and everything that came out on Tang. And they were big two-tone fans as well. And they just mixed it into this amazing sound a metal uh, guitar yes you know but ska rhythms yes. and then dicky the lead singer yeah this gruff voice you know it was there was nothing else like it you know nothing and, like singing caribbean music in a thick boston accent oh, but this, this guy though was <laughs> a character greg i'm not a coward i've just never been tested i'd like to think that if i was i would pass look at the tested and there before the grace go on might be a coward i'm afraid of what i might find out I love the Boston's. And, and, and to me, it's interesting See, you're because wrong, Greg. you go from uh, Jamaican uh, ska, you know, the, the core of the, 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 uh, the genre in the 60s, um, and then you, you flip over to England, and it was this biracial thing, the two-tone thing. Then you get to the 90s, and it's very much, uh, you know, a, a, white a coastal white suburban yeah. thing. So the rhythm is in being incorporated it, into it, but you're, you're commenting on the fact that there was this guitar-based you know, in-your-face kind of attitude. And you'd mentioned the label, I think, was very important at part of that, that Tang label. Explain a little bit more about that. Well, I mean, Tang put out those first few uh, Boston's records, and indirectly they made Scott acceptable for punk kids. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whether they knew they were doing it or not, that definitely helped. All of a sudden, you had that punk infusion of fans saying, hey, this Scott thing's all right. And yeah, they did want to hear kind of that faster, harder, whether it's hardcore punk or metal influence. They wanted that sound. wanted something that would fit on a huge bill uh, as the Warp Tour came through. Yeah, yeah. You know, that you was American Ska in the 90s. Mm, the Take Warped my Tour, skateboard, right? go to Warp, <laughs> and, there you and go. See, see me some right? Ska. The name we haven't mentioned, No Doubt. No matter what people say about No Doubt being, you know, a very big pop sensation that only loosely used ska in their, in their mix, uh, they were ska kids. I mean, they were putting out 45s at the very beginning of the 90s, just straight yeah. up ska records, you know. Yeah. But it's like there's two different No Doubts. That's exactly it. There's yes. the pre-stardom uh, No Doubt right. and then the Gwen Stefani Absolutely. You know, backing band. Um, and I think No Doubt just sort of did what was... Kind of part of their natural, you know, progression was, you know, that, well, we're kind of a, a poppy new wave band that incorporates some punk, some reggae, some ska. And then, you know, Gwen kind of went on her, you know, well, I'm influenced by dancehall. And that kind yeah. of started her solo career. So it's not unlike second wave ska. Peters out into new wave, a poppier, more commercial sound, less ska influence. Third wave peters out in the U.S. Yeah, it does, and it does fast. When? Uh, well, '98 was kind of the peak, and then all of a sudden, by '99, you saw the bands that were big ska bands put out their non-ska albums. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's uh, more to us, right? Yes. Exactly. Uh, the uncomfortable non-Scott album. And then <laughs> by uh, 2000, you did kind of feel that, you know, the house had completely collapsed. It was done. Yeah. It was done. And I, I think that happened because it just grew so fast in such a short amount of time. 
But we're talking really about the commercial uh, yes, uh, not lasting because Ska's alive and well. You're, you're promoting oh, yeah. shows here in Chicago, big festivals in Chicago, and, and these festivals happen around the world. Oh, yeah. I mean, what I love to do with, with Jump Up is put out records from bands all across the world. So I have a band from Seoul, South Korea mm-hmm. right now on the label. I actually put out a Mento band from <laughs> the Philippines. That's great. Sung in their <laughs> native tongue. <laughs> All these bands are playing huge festivals, whether it's Denmark or Seoul, South Korea or Japan. And yeah, it's happening everywhere. It it never stopped. Uh, But now, you know, you really see that the true fans have kind of all banded together and, and really kept it alive. So when people talk about, well, is there a fourth wave on the way? I said, we don't need one. You, you don't know, need a wave. We have an ocean of right, sky. We're here. You know, we're living it every day. It's healthy everywhere you go. Chuck Wren has been our guest on Sound Opinions. Thanks, Chuck, for coming in. Oh, it's been a blast. That wraps up our ska genre dissection, but we want to hear from you. What's your favorite era of ska? Are you eagerly awaiting the fourth wave? Give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. When we come back, we'll review the new record from Soul Singer and Chance the Rapper collaborator, Jamila Woods. Plus, I'll drop a quarter into the Desert Island Jukebox. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis. You're listening to a little bit of Jamila Woods with a track called Black Girl Soldier from her first solo album, Heaven. Jamila Woods is a multifaceted artist out of Chicago, big part of the spoken word scene in the city, the poetry slam scene. She also has been working in the music world. Uh, She put out a couple of duo records a few years ago and has made a name for herself in recent years doing cameos on various records. She appeared on that Macklemore and Ryan Lewis track, White Privilege 2. She was a big part of that Sunday Candy hit for Chance the Rapper on the Surf album, Donnie Trumpet's Surf album last year, and she also appeared on Blessings uh, from the new Chance the Rapper record. So she has made quite a name for herself as a guest vocalist on these recordings. This is her first solo record. It's called Heaven. Here's a track from it, then we're going to review it. It's called Very Black from Jamila Woods on Sound Opinions. Black is like the magic, the magic's like a spell. My brothers went to heaven, the police going to yell, they're going to Emergency hotline If I say that I can't breathe Will I become a child? Line up to see the movie Line up to see the act The officers are scheming To cover up their cover up their Ask me no more questions Tell me no more lies You're serving and protecting says guillotine a missionary commission misery into angel wings and all he want to do is be still and cut bread never know the dead how they whisper forgive me everything is relative politicize the evidence i heard a politician reiterate all the messages and all he want to do is feed family be famous never know the poor how they scream out redeem me everything is casualty a song i heard the bullets sing i know a couple babies gonna see him fly tonight Wish he wasn't magic. All he wanna do is be a passage in the book titled America the Savage. Symphony is symphony when everything was meant to be. Piano man and drummer boy just invented the song for me. And all I wanna do is find love and be happy. And all I wanna do is find love. I'm very That is very black by Jamila Woods, her first album, Heaven and Greg. It is an incredible record. Exceedingly powerful very much part of the Chicago tradition, I think, of soul and hip-hop. What has distinguished Chicago hip-hop in particular from Common to Chance the Rapper with Kanye in between? It has been talking about the real lives of the African-American community in this city, not glorifying the gangsta mythology, talking about very real issues of community. Jamila here dropping bits of holy scripture, church songs. My cup is full up, what I got is enough. Nobody completes me, don't mess with my stuff. My cup is full up, what I got is enough. 
playground uh, games, chants the kids would play, you know, in kindergarten, protest rhymes. We have her quoting Losing My Religion by mm-hmm. R.E.M. at one point and also dropping a little Paula Cole on us. Now, her championing in particular the black woman's experience Man, in that song, Black Girl Soldier, you know, she's name dropping Rosa Parks and Ella Baker and and Angela Davis. Call it black girl magic. Yes, she scares the government. Deja vu of Tubman. That's Harriet Tubman. There is no more powerful political figure, I think, in America, both underrated and yet their voices are so important than than the African-American woman. And wow, musically incorporating uh, Donnie Trumpet, who's also a, a chance collaborator and some jazz and some soul and hip hop. Chance the Rapper stops by to return the favor. This here ain't for no vice doc. This here ain't for no spike op. But since I was one like a cyclops, I run up some stairs on a bike cop. I shake up some hands on the right block. Black Club President Nightwatch. To me, it's it's like the next step beyond, you know, taking Neo Soul into a new place uh, that is streetwise, but also funny, humane, and poignant. This is a buy it record for sure. Well, this record blows me away too, Jim. I can't see this record not being regarded as one of the signature records of what has been a great wave of, of soul and hip hop out of Chicago the last few years. What I love about her voice, it's not a big voice. There's a light touch to her tone, and I think it's a perfect tone for blurring the lines between the political and the personal in this record. Black girl be in a bubble, bubble, floating quietly out of trouble, trouble. They call you shy, oh. never comes across as preachy or self-pitying, even though it is very political in almost every track. You know, when she looks in the mirror as a young African-American, you know, looking back on her younger self, and and doesn't like her features, you know, because she's been uh, taught by society that as as a black woman, somehow she is inferior. She's fighting back against that. When as an adult, she sees the idea that, okay, we've been uh, talking about equality for how many years now? My grandmother yeah, yeah. and my great, great-grandmother have been telling me about this, and they're still, you know, we've barely moved the dial in the direction we want to move to, and this, the sense of hopelessness that you can face there. And at the same time, rising above that, like, I will not be defeated. Uh, she is basically encompassing all these different styles of music, you know, bringing in jazz, bringing in hip-hop, bringing in the soul uh, influence. And I think the fact that when you listen to this record from a distance, you, it almost feels playful, mm-hmm. uh, like, a, like a children's record. There's almost like a sing-song equality about some of this music here. But then when you zero in closer, you realize, wow, these are some heavy subjects here that she's addressing. I love that juxtaposition of the light and the dark. It is a buy-it record all the way. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Remember, we were shipwrecked together. 
As often as possible on Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the Desert Island and play a track we cannot live without. Jim, the Desert Island jukebox is all yours today. What's it going to be? Greg, we recently had Bob Mould as a guest on the show. He's been on the show several times. That always gets me thinking about that incredibly fertile period in indie rock in the early and mid 80s. And also there's been a lot of talk lately, uh, thanks in part to John Doe's book, about the early L.A. punk scene, what was going on there. I'm going to play a track by Jeffrey Lee Pierce. He was the driving force in this band, The Gun Club, formed in L.A., sort of a psychobilly, cowpunk, post-punk, tribal psychobilly blues is a, a phrase that they like to use. This weird band that didn't fit in any notch in the 80s, coming out of Los Angeles. Uh, Jeffrey Lee Pierce originally was the president of the Blondie Fan Club in Los Mm. Angeles, who later winds up signed to an indie label that Chris Stein of Blondie did. But when they debuted, they were on a subsidiary of Slash Records, the great Slash Records. They were peers of bands like X and the Flesh Eaters and the Blasters, doing something that, that, that had like this voodoo vibe and this horror comics thing and, and blues, but blues the way the cramps warp them. And then the country and the just, just they didn't fit anywhere. I, I think I saw the gun club seven times in like a month and a half hmm. at one period in the mid 80s. They were stuck on the East Coast. I'm going to shows all the time in, in New York and New Jersey. He was scary on stage. There was this dark, sinister vibe, an American Nick Cave. Hmm. Think of it that way. Both with the ominous vibe, but also uh, the literary ambition. Uh, No less an authority than Jack White of the White Stripes has said of the song I'm about to play, they ought to teach this song in school. This is a track called She's Like Heroin to Me. Uh, I think Jeffrey Lee Pierce knew a lot about obsession with women and obsession with drugs. Sadly, he died in 1996 after a brain hemorrhage, well before his time. Uh, A real tragic piece of L.A. rock history. But this is when they were just starting out. That first album was called Fire of Love. This is a signature track along with a tune called Sex Beat. Those are the two big gun club songs about obsession, about addiction, about about just sex and violence and drugs. I mean, what else do you need in rock and roll, right? She's Like Heroin to Me by Jeffrey Lee Pierce and the Gun Club on Sound Opinions. Yeah. 
That's the Gun Club with She's Like Heroin to Me, my Desert Island jukebox pick for the week. Greg, what do you have on the show next week? Jim, next week, a live performance and interview with a rocker who made one of last year's best albums, Courtney Barnett. Sound Opinions was produced by Brendan Banizak, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and our intern, Daphne McGlean. Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hi, guys. This is Matt from Chicago. I just listened to your Alan Vega tribute, and I think it's worth mentioning that before... Bruce Springsteen started covering Dream Baby Dream in his live shows. Uh, he met uh, Alan Vega in the studio, I think, in the 80s. And uh, I think you can really um, hear some influence on the Nebraska album. License registration. I got none. But I got a clear conscience. You can hear it a lot in the minimalist production and the use of echo on his voice. That's all. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hi, uh, Jim and Greg. This is Rob from Munster, Indiana. He did a pretty good show on the post-rock thing. At first, I encountered a tortoise teaching at WNUR in 1994. Uh, to the two seven-inches that they released and the first album, Tortoise. And that first album pretty much changed my life. One band you left out, they should have mentioned, was Explosions in the Sky. I... My name is Marianne Mata, and I'm located in New York. I didn't like this kind of music that's on the radio because I'm supposed to be old enough to be a grandma, but I have no grandchildren. But I find it fascinating and interesting, and the music is entertaining, and it's different, and it's weird, but it, I like it. Thanks. Bye.
Share your opinions on Sound Opinions. Call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.